0: We are rounding out the Thanksgiving week here in the Capital Region, which means many who celebrate December holidays are now officially in full holiday season mode. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll take an in-depth look at the results of the New York State Assembly's long-awaited investigation into the alleged misconduct of former Governor Andrew Cuomo.
1: They lay out clear and convincing evidence, it, it appears, that Governor Cuomo and his top aides had enlisted state workers to do work on his private book.
0: We'll hear about a new local effort to help support people without shelter in the capital region.
2: That was probably one of the most eye-opening experiences I've had in my life and we'll talk to filmmaker Sir Michael Lindsay-Hogg
0: whose footage of the Beatles as they recorded their final album in 1969 is featured in Peter Jackson's new documentary series The Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus.
3: I gave him a lot of good footage. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff there.
0: This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall.
3: If you're enjoying this
4: podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer, and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe.
0: Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's talk about the top state news on this short holiday week. The New York State Assembly released its long-awaited investigative report into former Governor Andrew Cuomo's alleged misconduct. It found, quote, overwhelming evidence that Cuomo engaged in sexual harassment and that he misused state resources to produce his COVID-19 memoir, American Crisis, among other things. To break it all down, I'll toss it over to Times Union editor in chief Casey Seiler and Capital Bureau managing editor Brendan Lyons.
4: I am Casey Seiler, the editor in chief of the Times Union, and I am happy as always to be joined by Brendan Lyons, our managing editor for investigations and our Capital Bureau chief. And what were your big takeaways from the report? What surprised you the most?
1: One of the things that struck me first was they lay out clear and convincing evidence, it it appears, that Governor Cuomo and his top aides had enlisted state workers to do work on his private book, the book for which he was offered more than $5 million in the end to, to publish. And that is also has been the focus of the U.S. attorney's investigation, although we don't know where that investigation stands. But it is certainly not closed at this point, as far as we can tell, because the health commissioner, Howard Zucker, was interviewed about six weeks ago for that investigation. That, to me, was the most startling because there had been all indications from the governor's office and the statements they have made that all of this work was voluntary. But this report Makes clear that individuals did not believe their work was voluntary. They were being instructed what to do. And these instructions and in this work was taking place on government time, not just for salaried employees, but for those who are hourly workers.
4: It appears that, yeah, the sort of low level staffers were doing kind of clerical tasks, uh, you know, setting up meetings, setting up audio recording sessions for the, the audio book copy. Whereas high level staffers, including Melissa DeRosa, who's the former governor's uh, secretary, meaning his top aide, really almost functioned almost like an agent, it sounds like. The governor had a separate literary agent, but Melissa DeRosa, if you read the narrative, though she's not named, it's easy to figure out who she is, was apparently exchanging hundreds of emails with the publishing house. And she was identified by one of the editors there as you know uh, uh, an outstanding partner in this effort and it's really kind of shocking
1: and this begins in what is the height of the pandemic the early stages of it where he sets in motion this idea that hey I am doing so great and I am popular on national television I'm going to cash in I'm going to I'm going to write a book before the pandemic is even over but th- the point is that it was taking away from the, the ability of key people, it seems, in that administration and even low-level people to focus fully on the COVID response and that work. And the description of Rosa's efforts on this book through the, the latter months of last year makes clear that she was investing an enormous amount of time in helping uh, the publication of this book, which it turned out, the investigation also revealed that the publisher's sought to remove any mention of those state workers' involvement in producing this book, which is uh, a little bit like taking credit for someone else's work, I guess you could say.
4: In addition to that, Phil Steck, who's an assemblyman from the Capital Region and a member of the Judiciary Committee and a Democrat, a progressive Democrat, who has not, uh, not always interacted well with the governor. He's not a fan, oh, sorry, the former governor, stated, and he's not the only one who has said this, that there is a connection or inferences that can be drawn about the effort to stonewall the uh, data describing the full scope of fatalities in New York's nursing homes from COVID-19 and the timeline of the negotiation over the book and certainly the preparation of the book. In other words, at the same time that the administration was trying to, not trying to, but succeeding in withholding data from not only reporters, but also members of the legislature as well about the potential damage done to nursing home residents, it was also moving ahead with the composition of this very glowing portrait of how Cuomo and his team handled the pandemic.
1: It was more about optics than about truth. In the end, it's interesting that this investigation, although it did not do a scientific examination of what caused the spread inside nursing homes, they said that their interviews with everyone involved, the stakeholders, the health officials, there was no reason to dispute that it was, as the governor's administration said, spread in nursing homes was caused by staff bringing the coronavirus into those facilities, as opposed to residents being discharged from hospitals who were COVID positive. And under the governor's order, which was quickly rescinded, nursing homes were being forced to accept those residents. So knowing that you look back now and you wondered, why didn't you just tell the truth? You wouldn't be taking it on the chin because it's become blurred in that people have suggested that the administration caused these deaths. That's not true. What is true is that the administration played with the math and it was in an effort, it seemed to show that New York was successful. The governor went through a lot of pains last year to show data indicating that New York, in terms of nursing home fatalities and per capita and and such, was well below what some of the worst states had. That's what drew the interest, I think, of the US Attorney's Office is, did they manipulate data and did they provide false data to any federal agencies in order to elevate the governor's public persona so that this book would have more a more receptive audience.
4: I believe that, to, to borrow a phrase from the Watergate era, it's the cover-up, not the crime that gets you. To get back to some of the other subjects that the assembly looked at, in terms of the sexual misconduct allegations, I, I think it's fair to say, I don't know if you would agree, that this report doesn't really plow too much new earth on those allegations, though it does do a bit of a cleanup job on some of the details surrounding the allegations of Brittany Comiso, especially around the date when the alleged groping by the former governor of Ms. Camiso occurred. But other than that, I mean it uh, it doesn't go beyond the one hundred and fifty page report put out by the Attorney General's office back in August.
1: They point out too that what needed to be pointed out by someone other than reporters perhaps is that the attorney general's office made a grave error in indicating in their report that Ms. Camisso's groping incident, if it happened, happened on November 16th last year, it did not. She made clear that that was just a timestamp that she could remember it was sometime around that date. She had told us it was after that date and it turned out that it was in early December, not in late November. And, and they have affirmed that information. They have affirmed that information with the evidence that was also gathered, as you know, by law enforcement that showed her visit to the mansion that day. So it's just interesting that rather than throw shade on the governor for any of it, they, they affirm that the women They believe the women were all telling the truth and that the governor was engaged in a pattern of sexual harassment.
4: I guess my last question, um, in terms of potential legal exposure for Andrew Cuomo, does this report place him in significantly greater peril? Or perhaps is it an indication of the level of evidence, the amount of evidence that other investigative entities such as the attorney general's office in the matter of his COVID memoir might be looking at that could lead to, for example, a public officer's law violation against him.
1: Right. In terms of, I think the most exposure there is for the book, The Misuse of State Resources. It's worth noting that absent from this report is Any investigation that was done, meaningful investigation of the preferential testing for lawmakers and others, you know, family members of the governor, that's also an alleged misuse of state resources that the assembly ran away from. And it remains to be seen whether any law enforcement agency will look at that. The attorney general's office has an investigation of that. But I've talked to people who had key roles in setting up that VIP testing system, which was done secretly. They use code words to, to pull it off. And there is no indication that those individuals are being interviewed by investigators. With the book, certainly this report puts more pressure on the attorney general's office if they come out and say there will be no charges related to using state resources for personal benefit, which is what's alleged here. So now what you have left is an ongoing debate that I think will die out possibly about whether or not to go forward with impeachment, but the attorneys for the assembly, the investigators agree with the assembly counsel's opinion that under the constitution, you can impeach a person if they're still in office and you can also remove And prohibit them from running for future office. But you cannot just engage in an impeachment proceeding that would prevent Cuomo from running for office again. So there's the rub. That's what people are upset about because it appears that Cuomo could, in fact, return to the political arena.
4: Which was the same argument that you can't impeach somebody once they're out of office that was used by many Republicans in the US Senate, including Mitch McConnell way back in February when they were considering the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Well, Brendan, thanks a lot, obviously, for all the good work and the good analysis on the report.
1: You bet. Thanks very much.
0: You can read more about the report and other statehouse news in the Capitol Confidential section of TimesUnion.com. As I mentioned earlier, we're now squarely in the holiday season. For those who celebrate, Hanukkah begins this week. Christmas is just a few short weeks away, Kwanzaa is right on its heels, and then it's New Year's Eve. This five week span often inspires a burst of giving and generosity and draws attention to organizations that help and support Capital Region residents year round. Reporter Shanice Holmes Brown recently wrote a story about a new service that's offered by a nonprofit in Troy that brings food and supplies to people without shelter around the region. She went for a ride along with Joseph's House and Shelter's Outreach Fan, and she talked about the experience afterward with Managing Editor for News, Susan Mihalik. Here's their conversation. Hi,
5: everybody. I'm here with Shanice Holmes-Brown, who is one of the Times Union's Hearst Fellows for the next year. And Shanice has been with us for three months now. Um, Before we talk about the story that you worked on, um, Shanice, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you decided to get into journalism?
2: Thanks for having me. I'm really actually excited to talk about this story. So I got my interest in journalism when I was in high school. I had an internship with a state representative and I ended up being a part of a nearby newsroom. And so by the time I got to college, I already knew that that was the career that I wanted to go into because I just love writing. I love people and journalism is like perfect with both. So um, I'm really happy with the decision I've made and how I've ended up here.
5: Well, oh, we're so thrilled to have you for this year, Shanice. And we've been sending you out on all manner of stories. You're part of our go team. So basically whatever's going on that day, we tap you to go out and, and uh, cover the story. And recently uh, you had an opportunity to do a ride along with Joseph's House do you want to tell us about, about
2: that and what you did and what you learned? That was probably one of the most eye opening experiences I've had in my life. The topic of people being unsheltered is something that I, I already am passionate about. Um, so when I got the chance to do that, it was just really mind opening because to see that I was with two ladies, um, Tiana Minervini and Shelly Redinger and They had two vans. And so the van that I was on, they had their route throughout downtown Albany. And so um, just seeing them interact with everyone, you know, they knew everyone by name. They were kind of like in continuation of, you know, helping them getting whatever resources that they needed. And it was kind of like, you know, anything that they wanted, they got. The van had hot meals, uh, cold meals, like sandwiches and peanut butter and jellies. Um, They had stacks of clothes, hats, gloves, sweaters. So, you know, anything that anyone needed, you know, they got like the whole bundle. And it was more than just that, but they, they talked. They had conversations. They talked about their experiences. And I saw people who their experiences were so vast. When you think of being unsheltered, you think of, you know, the stereotypical movie scene, you know what I mean? Um, The real down low, but it's so much more than that. And there were people who had been out there for years and there had been people who were out there since the day before, who just got out there, um, who just had that, that experience happen to them that they didn't see coming. So I really think that it made me firstly very grateful to be where I'm at in life because, you know, you never know what happens the next day. But to also be able to see what people had gone through and to really to really feel their pain through what they spoke about and, you know, just wanting to have a better life for themselves.
5: And, you know, Shanice, I think one of the things we should say for our listeners is that Joseph's House, even though they are based in Troy and and they do run a homeless shelter over there, their outreach vans come into Albany County You know, Shanice was right. You were riding on uh, one of their new outreach vans. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Their newest one. It was so nice.
5: (laughs) And in your story, you talked about how they have a van that has a loop that goes through Albany, but then they also serve people farther out in Albany County as well.
2: Yeah. Like Colony and yeah.
5: And they are out there every single day. Is that accurate?
2: Yep. Every day for um, between eight to 10 hours.
5: Which you know they're they're pretty dedicated. It's a pretty dedicated lot of people. Can you tell us? Um, there were a few people you know, and in, in the course of writing the story, obviously because of you know space constraints, um, you couldn't include vignettes about everybody that you met. But could you tell us about maybe one or two of the people that you encountered and what and what they had to say about their experience, either with um, you know, being unsheltered
2: or Their interactions with Joseph's house? There were so many people. I think one of them that really made me very emotional was a man who had been out there for a while. He was pretty much talking about like the day by day ways that he tries to provide for himself, um, particularly with panhandling and how there were times where, you know, he needed medical help. Um, He was having some issues medically and he would need medical help but being in the waiting room for so long he couldn't afford to do that because he would have to go back out to panhandle to try to get money you know for food and stuff like that the way that he has to go about functioning and the way he needs to go about trying to get medical help but the weight is something that really messes up the way that he can sustain himself and them trying to help him and he also had um a substance problem so with that um, he said that he typically didn't he didn't enjoy the experience. He said it actually did nothing for him because the use has been for so long, um, but it actually eased his medical symptoms at least temporarily until he can go to the, to the hospital again. But again, when he went, it would take too long, and so his withdrawal symptoms would kick in and make the pain worse. So he it ended up kind of being more of a medical treatment for him than an actual like general. Yeah.
5: He was using uh, some kind of uh, street drug. We're guessing that it might be an opioid and he was in medical distress and he went to the emergency room and was was waiting there too long. And then he found that he needed to to leave because he was he was needing a a fix because he was in a lot of pain from the medical problem that he had. Yeah and he
2: was he was sick of it he was sick of the cycle he hated it and he was just uh, really really you know really really distraught about having to do it and the the ladies you know they listened to him they really tried to give him some support and some comfort non-judgmental you know what i mean so the conversation he was really just able to talk to somebody about how he felt and really just let it out and you could tell that they had a lot of mutual respect for each other and to me that was a really big deal cuz they didn't talk to him like petty They spoke to him, you know, respectable, like, you know, just regular person.
5: Like he was like, he's another human being who's deserving of their respect and their time and their empathy. Exactly, Um, Shanice, one of the things that you found out in reporting this story was, you know, how many people the Joseph's house outreach van is serving in Albany mm-hmm. County and also the breakdown, you know, the, the uh, demographic breakdown of who they're serving um, along
2: racial lines. Would you care to share that information with us? So the majority of people, the majority percentage um, was 73% of men for their clients for the street outreach altogether. And then there was 25% women. And then there was 2% um, for gender non-conforming. And then for demographics, the majority was over half of the participants were Caucasian. And then 40% were African-American. Uh, 8% was Hispanic or Latino um, ethnicity, and 1% as an American Indian or Alaskan native. And then there was another um, less than 1% that was Asian. Is there
5: anything else, Shanice, that, you, that you'd that you like to uh, discuss before we wrap?
2: I was really grateful to be able to to spend that day to hear people's stories, and it really reminded me of why I wanted to get into this career. Because writing those stories and speaking the truth about what people deal with day by day that don't always often be seen, you know, in the best light was an experience that I'm really, I'm really proud that I was able to have, and that I continue to advocate for.
5: Well, Shanice, thanks so much for getting out there and covering that story for us, and our listeners can uh, look forward to hearing more from
0: you in the future.
2: Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you so much. I I really am glad I was able to come
3: and talk about it.
0: After the break.
3: I mean, that is an interesting thought of you all being beaten up.
0: (laughs) Filmmaker and Hudson resident Sir Michael Lindsay Hogg talks about his time working with the Beatles on the last album the legendary band ever made. The new Peter Jackson docuseries, The Beatles Get Back, uses his original footage. We'll hear more coming up.
4: Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. More than 50 years ago, the Beatles recorded their last album together. Sir Michael Lindsay Hogg, then a 29-year-old budding filmmaker, filmed nearly every minute of the creative process, from the first rehearsals to the impromptu public rooftop concert they performed, which ended up being the last time the iconic British rock group ever performed together.
1: I mean, we never got a chance to do it
0: again. Using 50-plus hours of footage, Lindsay Hogg made a documentary called Let It Be, named after the ultimate album. It was released in 1970, but that was after the group had broken up. This week, Lord of the Rings trilogy director Peter Jackson released an eight-hour, three-part series on that same sequence of events using Lindsay Hogg's footage. And it sheds new light on the last days of the Beatles.
4: We should do the show in a place
3: we're not allowed to do it, getting forcibly ejected. I think that's too dangerous. I mean, that is an interesting thought of you all being beaten up. Sir
0: Michael Lindsey Hogg, now in his 80s, has a residence in Hudson, New York. Casey Seiler was able to connect with him recently to talk about his film, the new series, and what it was like working with the Beatles.
4: do we get too excited? What is this, this kind of moment like for you to have? all of this work, this project that you worked on for, you know, an extended period of time, but a half century ago when you were in your late 20s, I guess, just, just about to turn 30, right? And to have it kind of be back at the center of the uh, pop cultural conversation.
3: I'm pleased because I thought for a variety of reasons, Let It Be wasn't really given its due. As you may know, we shot the movie in January 1969. Uh, and then we went on through 1969 editing it. And it was going to be the next sort of big Beatles release, which is going to be their third movie. It was going to be a documentary. And then uh, things started to go kerfuey at Apple. Issues to do with money at first, who was going to be looking after the store, Was it going to be Alan Klein representing John George and uh, Ringo? Or was it gonna be John and Lee Eastman representing their son-in-law and brother-in-law, Paul McCartney? But then as so often things which start to be about money, and we can go back to the great novelists of the 19th century like Trollope or Thackeray or someone, or Dickens. um, When things start to be about money, sometimes they pull the scab off, are other bits of the relationship which are not going well. And so we're, we're, Let It Be is ready to go, but then no one's interested in it anymore because the Beatles are imploding, which we didn't think would happen when we were shooting Let It Be. And in fact, some of the editorial choices we made in Let It Be was to do with the, the idea uh, which the Beatles thought at the time they'd be staying together. And so then when it came out, it was released in America in May 1970, and the Beatles had officially broken up in May, April 1970. Mm-hmm. So we have a movie which is shot before they broke up and then was put on the shelf a while for a lot of internal reasons and then is released when they've broken up, and everyone thinks, oh, it's the breakup movie. This is this is what we've been hating, dreaming, nightmaring about for such a long time, the Beatles our mommy and our daddy are broken up. And so it was regarded as this kind of slightly soiled uh, remnant of what had been a glorious uh, four or five years when the Beatles had quite rightly, thank God, taken over the world because better the Beatles than some of the dictators that are are around and have been around in the world since then. To answer your question, the, the initial... Rollout of Let It Be was kind of frustrating for me because I felt it wasn't being looked at properly. And then it was slightly put under the carpet by Apple because Apple was itself splitting apart because Mm -hmm. of the the three and the one. I, I went on to have friendships in various ways with them, I did videos with McCartney when he had wings, um, Moe of Kintyre, John and Yoko and I were talking about um, doing a sort of television extravaganza with with the Rolling Stones and David Bowie, which never quite came to fruition, but it was a good idea. And so we stayed friends. I just kept agitating for Let It Be to somehow get out again because I thought it had had a... It had had a It had been kicked around a lot. And in fact, one of the things which really endeared Peter Jackson to me was early on when we first met and to talk about the footage and what he was thinking of and Let It Be. He said, tell me the story of Let It Be. And so I sort of told him what I've told you now and then said, and so when it came time for Let It Be to come out, They weren't dealing with it at all. They totally put it on a shelf. And I was the person who was dealing with the distributors. Like, you know, are we going to play it in Dallas and Fort Worth or just Los Angeles, which Mm -hmm. wasn't my kind of job at all. So Peter said to me, except for you, uh, Let It Be was really an orphan. And I thought, oh, my God, if anybody's ever had the word, to describe what it had gone through this this poor little frail movie he did and um, he, he you know he's he likes let it be he's always been anyway he's got he's got all the footage so he, he better like
4: it <laughs> how early were you brought in um, by peter jackson and, and his team and, and sort of what role did you play as kind of a a guide to to the footage because they're looking at you know a mammoth amount of footage that they've got to go through and Did you present to them your sense of what the shape of it was, what the standout moments were to you, or did they just want to kind of go go to it cold, as it it were?
3: Jonathan Clyde, who's one of the producers of Get Back, I suppose now, it's almost three years ago, I was in London, and he said, do you want to come in for a cup of tea to Apple? I said, sure. And um, he said, there's a little, there's something going on at the moment, and I I want to bring you into it. And yeah, okay. And he said, Peter Jackson has seen some of the old footage and wants to have a whack at it. Now that's English way of putting is is going re- to cut the film. <laughs> but the way they say it, he can have a whack at it. It's like, oh, Peter's just going to go in and cut down some branches and see what it's like. And Jonathan said, what do you feel about that? And I said, I'm delighted. I did it 50 years ago. I don't want to do it again. I've seen those 56 hours. I had a different size canvas to paint on at the time because, well, originally Peter's was gonna be a two two hour movie, two and a half hour movie. And now it's three separate episodes which are gonna add up to like eight hours. And so I said, uh, uh, listen, whatever whatever use I can be to Peter, let's talk, which is then when we met in Los Angeles and he wanted to know how Let It Be had come to be. And then, as he he said, there's Let It Be was an orphan. And how how did this all happen? He was trying to be like Sherlock Holmes, trying to figure out how this happened. I didn't want to be involved in the cutting because, I mean, as you know what it's like once you start whittling down 56 hours of footage, that can take you, well, it's taken him three years. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Also, I didn't, I don't really like revisiting things that I've done. I, I, they, they seem to be of a, of a time and of a place. G- goodness knows many directors like Ridley or someone like that, you know, he's, he's recut Blade Runner 12 times and he's got special editions and things like that. I kind of am, it's done, it's done. And then let's see what happens to it. And then, I mean, Bryce had revisited, you know, that turned out to be good. So then I didn't have much, occasionally Peter would get in touch and say, do you remember, what was going on on day six? He said, because I can't figure it out. And then I would say, oh yeah, that was the day that something happened. And then also, Peter, who's a technical quiz with the stuff he's got, you know, that Lord of the Rings paid for it over in New Zealand. He's got a state-of-the-art uh, editing room. He occasionally would, would well, he showed me when we we're in California a split screen of, of Let It Be on one side and and his new, the same shot, but brushed up from via New Zealand. And he said, see, look look at the shot from Let It Be. And mind you, this was on film and his was digital, but he said, you know, look at their hair. It's just looks lank, it doesn't look very good. And then he said, now look what we've got over in New Zealand. You can see the strands in their hair. Mm. And he was very chuffed by that because he wanted it to look as modern as it could. He wanted you to to be there not, and not feel the, the, the window, uh, the impediment of old footage, mm-hmm. which is a, I don't know what we'll do and we put out Let It Be again, but that's, that's another thing. And then as well as that, a lot of times when we were editing Let It Be, if one of the guitar players was talking, for example, but if you're a guitar player, when you're talking, you're always noodling on the guitar. And um I was never able to separate the tracks because we didn't have that technology then. And then so what Peter sent me a month or two ago, ago was what we had originally, and then what he's had, separating the tracks so you can lift the voice and, and diminish the guitar. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 audially, it's audially a, a completely new experience, as well as Giles Martin's remixing whatever he's remixed. You've worked with so many people, you've worked with the Beatles and you've worked with the Stones, who of course are
4: they're sort of like the Romulus and Remus of the British invasion. And right. Right. You know, the Beatles broke up, you know, 50 years ago. The Stones are still touring, you know, despite the fact that, of course, they've they've suffered, you know, mortality. They've suffered people quitting the band, this and that. Do you think that the continued affection, the veneration that people have for the Beatles, not that, you know, we don't venerate the Rolling Stones, but do you think that there's a quality of that affection that people have for them that is, um, perhaps related to the fact that that their career was kind of bookended, basically by a decade. That, in other words, they went on this this kind of creative journey that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that that perhaps is is one of the reason why you know people will line up to watch eight hours plus uh, about uh, about the recording. You know, a very a very finite period of time from a half a century ago.
3: Yeah, I mean, Peter's got. I have to say. I gave him a lot of good footage. I mean there's a lot of good stuff there. And he's put it together. I've only, like I say, I've only seen one and a half episodes so far, but he's he's put it together masterfully and, and he he gets right down to the bone. I mean, he doesn't hide anything. Um, I think there's a couple of things about the Beatles. One is the songs they wrote were more love songs and songs about what people go through in their lives as opposed to the stones at that period who were writing more about sex Mm -hmm. i also think the beatles took over the world in advance of the stones and in a way which could not be denied in that president kennedy was assassinated in november 63 by pre-arrangement, I mean with, with the deal with Epstein and Ed Sullivan. As far as I know, the the Beatles were on the Sullivan show in February '64, and America was in mo- mourning at that time. This this beautiful young president, his, his brains blown out, and then the Beatles came on Sullivan, and America was not in any way ready for joy again. And that's what these four exceptional human beings from Liverpool. Liverpool, it's like from Detroit or something. You know, I know knocking about Detroit, I like the Tigers, but um, the Beatles just turned up and turned the world around. And, I, and the Stones didn't do that because the, the timing wasn't right. And also that's not what they were writing about. They, they weren't writing about, I want to hold your hand, love me do. They were writing about the last time this will be the last time that we'll sleep together because i are going to go off to America and then go out with other girls. Um, so the answer to your question is maybe because it was bookended, but also maybe because it was to that degree different that the, the Beatles took over the world.
0: Alright, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. Hope everyone had a good holiday weekend. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Susan Mahalik, and Shanice Holmes-Brown for their contribution to this episode.